Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 4th of January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Health was visiting hospitals yesterday to see for himself firsthand the extent of overcrowding that's being felt in emergency departments right across the country. We're here at Beaumont Hospital this evening. I was in uh, St Vincent's earlier on today and I met with the senior HSE management team earlier today to make sure that everything that can be done is being done. And we're aware that there is a very significant pressure on patients and on uh, healthcare professionals uh, across the hospital system, across the HSEs. In some hospitals, it's uh, more severe than in others. Locally, hospitals are under huge pressure with 33 people admitted to hospital in Drogheda yesterday who were told there was no bed available in the Lourdes to actually admit them to. In Navin, 10 patients were admitted by doctors, but there were no beds available for them in Our Ladies. Government's focus is making sure that... Um, all measures that can be taken are taking. So what does this include? It includes the use of all available private capacity. That's private hospitals, private diagnostics, uh, home care, home care supports, GPs, who I want to acknowledge have really stepped up. They've agreed to do additional uh, work uh, this week and, and, and into the coming week. Well, with almost a thousand people on trolleys yesterday, everything that can be done must be done. Uh, we're looking at uh, staffing. Uh, we're very keen to see senior decision makers uh, on site, uh, particularly when uh, when patients uh, need them, be it be it late at night, uh, be it at the weekends. Uh, where that is needed, uh, and various other measures. The objective to, to solving uh, this crisis is simple in one way, and that is if a patient is admitted to hospital, they go to a ward and they get treated in a hospital bed. To um, make sure that there are options for patients once they're admitted to get up into a ward bed, to do that, obviously, we need to make sure that all discharge options are available. Uh, one of the, the things the HSE Uh, has been bringing online is more and more options for the hospitals to discharge to uh, community nursing units, to community beds, uh, as well as home home support beds. Stephen Donnelly, under pressure. Cabinet meets today and the Minister will update government on this crisis. Uh, I'll be meeting with the HSE senior team again uh, on Friday and obviously we'll we'll be managing this on a Uh, on a daily basis. Um, That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking to reporters last night. Now, we may hear more of uh, that press conference later in uh, the programme today, but let's speak now to AIM2 leader and founder, Padre Tobin, TD for Mead West, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There's no doubt a a lot is being done, and everything that can be done uh, is 
being done to try and stop this crisis, but it's a crisis uh, of uh, the government's own making, you would contend. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible situation. In many ways, when you listen to the government, you feel that the government are nearly blaming people for getting sick, uh, and that's causing the crisis within the health service. The cause of the crisis in the health service is the lack of capacity. We have a health system that spills for three and a half million people, and not the five and a half million people now that live in the state. Uh, we have a health service that went through 10 years just after the crash of having its services cut, uh, which has had a, a massive, uh, significant uh, uh, reduction in the level of capacity uh, just in the last while. Uh, and we have a health service that have gone through closures. There's eight A&Es have been closed in this state in the last 15 years. Now, if you close eight A&Es then in 15 years and then find that all the A&Es are rammed, that they're jammed, that they're stuffed, you know, logic will tell you maybe you close too many A&Es and that's uh, a part of the problem in relation to this. And it was really interesting. Yesterday, Professor Declan Lyons, who's a consultant physician and geriatrician in Limerick Hospital, who himself, uh, I believe, was a clinical director of Limerick uh, University Hospital, he stated on live radio, which what we have been stating for a long period of time, he stated in 2009 the closure of the A&Es in Ennis, Nina and St. John's Hospital were wrong. And they have in part significantly caused the, the pressure, the chaos that's happening in Limerick University Hospital at the moment. And the fact that senior clinicians are waking up to this 10 years later, but still the HSC is involved in the process of closing A&Es, it's still absolutely mind-bending uh, from the perspective uh, of a citizen in this country. Um, okay. It's it, a little it, bit more than 10 years, though, isn't it? It's, it, 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 it's been 15 years since the likes of Nina and, and Ennis mm. um, and uh, St. John's Hospital and, and even Monaghan and Dundalk. Those, those A&Es lost their, their A&Es. Mm. Um, and as a result, that's put the pressure on the rest of the, of the section. And that's leading to, and it's very important to say this, that's leading to the overcrowding. It's leading to patients being crammed um, on trolleys side by side in A&Es. It's leading to, you know, not enough space for doctors and nurses to carry out, um, you know, the delivery of, of diagnostics and treatments uh, on those patients. It allows for the cross, you know, fertilization of, 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 of contagious illness in those uh, uh, small spaces. And it's leading to deaths. There's about 360 people who are dying every year in this state due to hospital overcrowding. And even like, you know, I've been looking at the figures and I've, 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 I've got a parliamentary question response back on this. There was 105,000 adverse incidents last year in the healthcare system. So that's a, that is situations where patients in the healthcare system had damage done to them, not by accident, um, in the healthcare system. And... That's leading to, in some cases, death, in some cases, people being disabled, etc. And we, we have a, a situation where the state has paid at 2 billion euros in compensation for those adverse incidents in a, in, in, in a short period of time. That money should have gone into the creation of new staff, new capacity, etc., the delivery of proper health services, rather mm. than 
see these this damage being done okay. so being compensated for it in the end. Right, well, there was nearly a, a thousand people on, on trolleys yesterday uh, and uh, what that means is uh, that those po- people need to be treated in hospital. They're so sick that they should be in hospital being cared for on a ward in a hospital bed. They've been admitted to the hospital by the doctors but there just isn't a bed available for them on a ward in the hospital that they're attending. And there's almost a thousand people in in that situation. Can I I quote a a government minister uh, on this uh, who said that the bottom line is that no one, particularly no older person, should sleep overnight on a trolley in a corridor. Uh, The same minister said that every resource would be prioritised and every action needed would be taken to improve care for patients at A&E. People who need to be admitted will have beds, not trolleys, and the basics for human dignity. That will be put in place in the coming months, this minister said, because anything less than that would be unacceptable to the public, not acceptable to the minister and not acceptable to the HSE. Uh, Now, that's uh, a statement from the Minister for Health uh, who declared a national emergency in hospitals, emergency departments, almost 20 years ago. In 2006, uh, Mary Harney made those comments when she was uh, the Minister for Health. Uh, She made those comments because of the public outcry when there was 495 people on trolleys. And that compares to double that figure yesterday, almost 1,000 on trolleys. It's an incredible situation. Yeah, so there's a couple of points to that. I believe there's a duplicity uh, inherent in the government's approach to this. So yes, the likes of Mary Harney say exactly what uh, James Riley, uh, exactly what uh, Stephen Donnelly say. The language is nearly exactly the same over the period of those 20 years. Yet they carry out policies which lead directly to this situation. So they're saying one thing to ameliorate the anger that's, that's in society, but they're still following exactly the same policy platform which is causing the damage. The second thing is, in relation to, to, to Minister Donnelly saying that they're going to get every single resource in place to make sure these problems don't happen. Well, the, the, the situation in Limerick was particularly kicked off because Shannon Dock, which is its out-of-hours uh, doctor-on-call service there, literally was grinding to a halt, nearly fell apart just before Christmas. It couldn't take patients. And as a result, patients then were sent uh, into A&E uh, to be dealt with. Um, and that's Shannon Dock is not on its own in relation to this. In, in, in Mead and in Loud, at the moment, there are many evenings and nights where there's no doctor on call, where people have to travel 80, 90 kilometres to a doctor on call. So those people are going to go into uh, A&E's mm. uh, instead. Step down. Right now, there's about 600 patients in hospitals in Ireland that are clinically discharged. That means the doctor has said, we can do no more for you. You should be either at home or in some other part of the health service to get treatment that can be delivered there. And yet, the, the, the home care packages are not in place the, the, the pathways into other health service uh, elements are not in place. So those um, clinically discharged patients can't leave those hospitals. Mm. Now, that's about 600. If you take the 600 away from the 900... And that's because there isn't a home uh, care service available for them uh, or there isn't a, a nursing home uh, space available for them or a step-down bed available for them, but they shouldn't be in hospital. That's it. And that's two-thirds mm. yeah. of the people who are on trolleys. That's not acceptable. That's not... Are, 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 
absolutely it's not it's not it's not acceptable uh, and 20 years ago it wasn't acceptable let me just run over that line that the minister uh, in 2006 said uh, not acceptable to the public not acceptable to the minister and not acceptable to the HSE in 2007 I take it it wasn't acceptable to the public acceptable to the uh, unacceptable to the minister and unacceptable to the HSE uh, in 2008 I imagine it was the same uh, and I imagine that uh, come January of 2024 it, it won't be something that is acceptable to the public it won't be acceptable to the minister and it won't be acceptable to the HSE. Uh, but will it be the situation, acceptable or otherwise? It will be the situation. And I'll tell you why. Because we have witnessed, especially in this region, over the last uh, number of months, a titanic battle between the HSE and the minister, where the HSE is simply ruling the roost and doing what it wants to do, and while at the same time uh, the minister is you know, has his hands tied and is finding it very difficult to push back and stop um, the, the HSE. You know, an incredible issue that uh, you know, I, I was reading yesterday, researching about this yesterday, was that, you know, we, we know there's a major crisis in GP access. And, and again, lack of GP access leads to overcrowding in A&Es because if you can't get on a GP list, number one, you, you have to go to an A&E. And if you can't get a, a, an appointment with a GP for two weeks, you have to go to the A&E. The HSE does not know how many people are waiting for, uh, uh, to get onto a GP list in this country. They, they, they don't analyze, they don't you know, record or identify the amount of people who can't get a GP appointment or how long they're waiting. But that's the key building block of this. The GP is the first door into the health service in this country. And if the first door is blocked, well, then people are pushed into the A&E. So how do you fix the A&E overcrowding if you can't get the GP stuff right. And secondly, the, the, the minister mentions you know, that all private health service capacity will be put into place. Right now, there's no centralised system for private health care capacity to be utilised within the public health mm. system. So it's done in the, on an ad hoc basis here and there, but there's no you know, a group of people, two or three or four people, who are saying, okay, here's capacity, here's an A&E that's mm. a private A&E, but it shuts in the weekend or it closes at 8 o'clock in the evening. Let's get that ramped up overnight, etc. And if the minister meant business, he would be pushing for that as well. Okay, well, the government might argue otherwise, uh, but governments have been arguing otherwise for 20 years. Uh, and this problem dates back to before Mary Harney declared the problems in emergency departments, a national emergency that had to be tackled as a priority. And 20 years on, if you like, uh, the problem is twice as bad. But over the years, we've heard the government say that they'll respond by dealing with those discharge problems, making more nursing home beds available, more home care hours available, step-down beds and so on. We've heard about the GPs, primary care centres and all that sort of thing. More beds will be uh, made, uh, brought online uh, in hospitals, more staff, Consultants will work different hours, new contracts and all of that sort of thing. But here we are 20 years on and the problem is twice as bad. Uh, maybe you bear with me for a moment and we'll hear a little bit more from the Minister because the government will say that they've invested an awful lot. And in fairness, they have invested an awful lot into the health service. Uh, but why does the problem continue? People have asked why the pressures uh, that we're seeing now. Um, we know that there has been an unprecedented level of investment uh, by government since COVID arrived. We have about 950 extra hospital beds, a lot of extra ICU capacity, hundreds of extra uh, community beds, over 16,000 more um, healthcare professionals working within the HSE. So we've seen a permanent expansion 
in our public health system over the last few years that is unprecedented. And so people are, people are asking, well, then why are we still seeing these pressures? What the HSC are telling me um, and what the, the treating clinicians in the emergency departments are saying is they're still dealing with COVID, obviously. There's still a lot of people coming into hospital with COVID. Uh, there have to be separate um, uh, pathways for COVID patients. There are infection prevention and control measures around COVID patients that mean that more beds uh, or less beds rather become available when, uh, when COVID patients are coming in. We've had a big wave of RSV. Uh, the latest figures show that that is falling and we want to see that continue to fall. But what I'm hearing uh, this week, what, I'm hearing, what I was hearing last week, and uh, what I'm hearing uh, um, here today and in, in Vincent's today is that the flu wave um, is, is, uh, is very severe. Uh, it's hit earlier than it normally would. And so we have this perfect storm of uh, RSV, the flu, uh, and COVID, obviously, as well as all of the normal pressures and that really that has absorbed um, the significant additional capacity that um, has been put into the system. Yeah, that's uh, Minister Stephen Donnelly explaining why uh, there's a problem uh, this year. Uh, and in fairness to the Minister, Patrick Tobin, uh, it's not a uniquely Irish problem. This perfect storm that he, he talks about is being felt across Europe, isn't it? Uh, the combination of flu, RSV and COVID. Like, again, what we have is the Minister saying the reason why hospitals are full is because people get, keep getting sick. If people would just have a little bit of cop on and stop getting sick, there'd be no problem with the minister's hospital system. What kind of nonsense is that? The, the idea that the capacity crisis in the hospital system is due to the fact that pesky people keep getting sick is absolutely wrong. The reason there's a capacity problem in the hospital system is because the government have gutted this. Now, I listened to the minister saying that we've had an unpre- unprecedented increase in the number of hospital beds ICU beds, etc. Now, he takes a baseline of at the bottom of just after the crash. So when the government literally had gutted the health service, it did go down to a really low level. And yes, it, they have increased the number of beds, etc. since then, marginally. But in 2008, before the crash, there were 21,000 hospital beds in this state. Now, today, there are 14,412. So when the minister, and you, when, when people listen to the minister or the Taoiseach say we've invested massively, figures are up, they're only talking about figures are up from the very bottom of the trough after the crash. Just repeat those and, figures again, if you would. So if, 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 in 2008, there were 21,000 hospital beds. In 2020, there were 14,412 hospital beds in the state. And that's, the, the population is easily increased by over 200,000 people in that period. So of that's 7,000 fewer beds. 7,000 fewer beds than there was just before the crash. When the minister's quoting that there's been an increase in hospital beds, and they, they, they do this all of the time, and it's really sneaky, they're quoting from about 2014 when there was, when literally we were at the, on the floor in, in capacity in the state after all the cutbacks, after we had the Troika in this country. So it's, it is deeply disingenuous to say that we have, have, have an increased strength health service we simply don't. We don't have enough. And the other point I will say to you as well, mm. there is a lot of money going into the health service for absolute sure. But that money has not been focused on frontline delivery of diagnostics, engagements, consultations, operations or treatments. That money is getting lost in layers of management. Mm. And we believe what needs to happen is hospitals and the health service should get paid on the, on the number of engagements they have with patients. Every time there's an operation, every time there's a consultation, every time there's a diagnosis or a treatment, well, then you can get paid on that basis. In the same way that a, a, a small business only gets paid on the basis of 
value it brings to actual customers, the HSC should only get paid on the basis of value it brings to actual patients. Because what happens is in this country, as we see in hospitals, hospitals will actually close operations down for three or four months over the winter. And that means that, you know, lists are getting longer, people are waiting longer, but the hospital is still getting paid the same, the money is still coming through the same. But if you turned around to the hospital and said, no, 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 you, you're only getting paid if you actually continue delivering in those operations, uh, then you would see the, the reduction in the level of people on the waiting mm-hmm. list. There are 850,000 people in this country currently waiting uh, for a operation or a, a consultation uh, in hospitals, and that's an incredible situation. Uh, well, there's no doubt about it. It's a completely incredible, incredulous situation uh, because we're talking a, about a, a situation where the problem has doubled over 20 years or uh, thereabouts uh, when we were told it was a national emergency and it had to be tackled as a matter of priority. And I'm sure you'll agree uh, that people shouldn't go to the emergency department or to hospital if they don't need to. But about a thousand people went yesterday uh, and they needed to be in hospital because the doctor said they needed hospital care, but there just wasn't enough room in the hospitals for them. Absolutely. And what's going to happen with many of those people is their diagnosis will be delayed. Uh, because they're waiting so long to get in, maybe 12, 14, 16 hours to get uh, treatment. Um, their, their actual treatment will be delayed as well. Um, and there is a direct correlation between delayed diagnosis, delayed treatment, and the outcomes for patients. Um, and studies have been done in Britain in relation to this, and they have shown that there's an increase in mortality, in death, yeah. uh, as a result of people waiting uh, significant times to get seen mm and treated uh, in a... The, the consequences of a stroke uh, going untreated uh, is pretty unbelievable if somebody's in the hospital uh, waiting Absolutely, for and we saw that, that mm-hmm. very, very sad mm-hmm. case uh, yeah. where that young uh, woman in mm-hmm. Limerick Hospital waited, I think, 16 hours mm-hmm. uh, to be seen, and uh, she lost her life. So this is a life-and-death situation. This is, this is a threat okay. to health. It's a threat to... Um, to people's uh, lives and it should be treated as such All right, well, uh, and unless the government's changed tack on this now, and, and one other point I just want to say yeah. on this the, the government you, you know they, they tell you about what they've invested etc when it comes to the election Fine Gael will, will fight that election on what kind of taxes it can reduce for people so in this country we have an argument uh, every election about delivering European health services but the government say they'll do it on US taxes that is the deep inherent lie at the bottom of this problem. You can't do both. You can't have a US tax system and a European health service. Boston or Berlin, it's up to people to choose uh, is an argument that's been going on for 20 years for that matter. We leave it there for the moment. Though. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, the leader and founder of the AIM2 party, Patterson Bean, who's a TD for Meadwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Pope Benedict will be buried tomorrow. Uh, Let's look back on his leadership of uh, the Roman Catholic Church with Brendan Butler, a member of We Are Church Ireland. Good morning to you, Brendan, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. And happy new year to you and their listeners. And a very happy new year to you. And thanks uh, for joining us once again on the programme as well since we last spoke. Uh, Indeed, I think uh, we spoke uh, some time ago uh, when... uh, 
Benedict became Pope uh, and uh, he made history, of course, uh, for resigning as Pope in 2013. Uh, but his tenure uh, was certainly one uh, that will be remembered and not always for reasons uh, that uh, would be considered to be complementary. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I think, Michael, uh, without being too critical of, of the person, uh, uh, his policies uh, after the Second Vatican Council, you know, in 1962, 1965, Pope John XXIII, his great uh, cry at that stage was a journamento, that is bringing the church up to date and making it relevant to people. And then what happened then, John Paul II was elected, and within three years he appointed uh, the future Pope Benedict as his uh, most powerful secretary in charge of the doctrine of the faith. And over 32 years, they dominated the church. And their motto was restoration. That is, to bring the church back to where it was before the Second Vatican Council. So there was a great conflict going on over over all these years. And if anyone sort of said anything out of place, they were either silenced or excommunicated. And we know that uh, at least seven Irish priests were silenced, and they still are. One of them died in the meantime. And over 107 international theologians were silenced as well, mm. because they were they were continuing on what the Second Vatican Council, you know, trying to bring a doctrine up to date and trying to bring the church up to date, as we all are, as we are church. And that is our perspective. That is, we find the church now is becoming very irrelevant to young people. And we're saying is, you have to bring the church up to date. We can't be living back in, you know, in the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, refusing women their rightful place and calling, you know, gay people something wrong with them. All of that language and all of that attitude has to change because, and it will change eventually. Do you think so? But there is a lot of forces there uh, and he represented, uh, you know, mm. the, himself and John Paul, they represented this great uh, power behind. They were saying, things have got too far now. We have to put the boot down. Anyone who moves out of place, they'll be sanctioned. So that was the type we had for 32 years. Mm, indeed, I was speaking with Father Riggio Donovan uh, yesterday uh, about uh, Pope Benedict's leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. And he, he'd have been critical for uh, the same reasons uh, about uh, the attitude towards women in the church, same-sex couples uh, and contraception. Very conservative Pope. But I, I think his biggest criticism was of how clerical child sexual abuse was handled or mishandled or covered up. Yes. Uh, and when it broke out here in Ireland, uh, he... He, he sent a special letter to the Irish Catholics and he blamed, he said, well, it was due to the Irish bishops. Well, it certainly was. But he also blamed the Irish people for their lack of faith. And his attitude was always that there was nothing really wrong at the Vatican within the church. But yet, and he always claimed that it was sort of a, a something outside the church. It, and he saw the sexual revolution of the 1960s, he called it, as if that was causing our sex, the, all the clerical sex, you know, abuse. And it came out in 2001, he actually wrote a letter to all the bishops in the world, in Latin, 
stating that any more communication of if they have any credible accusation against any priest, they must send it directly to him in Rome. So he was inundated from 1981. He would have known everything that was happening throughout the Catholic world. And and it was a tsunami at that stage. And I think that was a part. He couldn't cope with that mm. because it, then he, he had to realize that it was a structural problem in the Catholic Church and that radical reform was necessary. And I think at that stage, despite, you know, his resignation, he just couldn't cope with it. Okay, but uh, I mean, it's true to say he inherited most of these problems, didn't he? Uh, And not much has changed since he resigned. No, no. We see in Black Rock College, we, you know, at the moment in Poland, there's a big controversy about uh, that when John Paul was Archbishop uh, of Krakow, that he, he... there were four priests who were abusing and he didn't do anything about it. So, so now, in every country, in Germany, every country, you know, if you examine, you'll find clerical sex abuse. And it has to do with the Catholic Church. And uh, something has to be done and radically done. No bishop has ever been sanctioned. They sanction priests, all right. And if a priest speaks out of turn, he's silenced. But when a priest is involved in clerical sex abuse, you know, he just is told, stop it and move on. Mm. But So that's the problem. It's, a, it's, a, it's always we been very hard. about sexuality. You know, when but, it comes to sex, yeah. we, we, we have a problem. It's always been very hard for people to balance that in their minds, uh, I think, Brendan, because I think uh, people would look at on sexual abuse, particularly child sexual abuse, as something that is intrinsically evil, if I can use that turn of phrase. Uh, but for a, a, a Christian uh, preacher, uh, to carry out such a, a dreadful act uh, is beyond comprehension and uh, for a uh, blind eye uh, approach to be taken to it uh, is all the other. And, and as you say, it still persists right through. I know Pope Francis is, tries to do something, but at the same time, there should be a radical shift, you know, that any priest, any bishop, they should be sanctioned immediately and they should be removed from the church. And so, the, and, and also the training, the training of seminarians, they're put into these colleges all, you just may all male, and uh, it encourages, I, I think it attracts that type of person, and then, when, and then it reinforces that type of, of behavior among men. And so we need to change the whole well, way. Well, they had to close Maynooth about training, 10 years ago, know. didn't they? It was about 10 years ago, I think, they had to close Maynooth uh, because... Uh, of uh, orgies, basically, men jumping into bed with other men on a continuous basis. Yes, yeah, and uh, so that's why we need women in the church. Mm. You know, but you said you said earlier on you think that's going to change. What makes you feel that? I mean, I think I was speaking to you ten years or fifteen years ago, and you were saying that, and I don't see any prospect of it yet. No, no, um, I, I, I think. The great anathema in the Catholic Church, and that was John Paul II too, he almost made it a dogma of the Catholic Church that no woman can ever be involved in the ministry of the Church. You can, you know, you can bring in the flowers, you can scrub the floors, you can clean the pews, but you're never going to be on that altar. And but that has to change. And we are as Catholics, progressive Catholics, we, we do believe that. 
Because at one stage, mm. the church said, oh, you, you, you know, you can take uh, money and get any amount of usury on it and all of that slavery, they backed slavery, all of that, that, that eventually changed. But mm. it took years and years and years of people fighting, no, not literally fighting, but struggling with authority to try and convince these people. Mm. Because when you see young people, they're walking away from this, from this church yeah. by the droves. Women are walking away. Mm. And uh, it's so obvious to us, and we say there'll be no church in the future. Mm. There'll be a future of, of a few people there, and they'll be very. Well, I, I don't know, Brendan. I mean, you, you know, when you say will be. when you say you think it's going to happen, I mean, do you believe that either of us uh, would ever see women priests in our lifetime? No, no. But there's a big movement in in America, yeah. and there's about 500 women. Are, are They found a bishop here in Austria about 20 years ago who is willing to, uh, to ordain women. And a group of American women went over to this bishop. Now, mm. it was illegal, but mm. still the bishop yeah, had yeah, that sure. power. And he sure. ordained them, and they're over in America. And there's yeah. one Irish woman. But they're not, they're not valid ordinations, are they? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if that's happened, as I'm sure it has, uh, I imagine the bishop was excommunicated and, oh, yeah, and the ordinations aren't, aren't deemed to be valid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that, that's a, a, a different thing, I suppose. But uh, listen, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, Pope uh, Benedict uh, will be buried tomorrow, obviously, and uh, people will be remembering him over the coming days. And thank you indeed over for sharing with us. Yeah, for good and for bad. And yes. In, yes, indeed. Thank you, Brendan Butler, member of We Are Church Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to the Navin listener contacting us uh, saying it, it was great to see the love and respect uh, that has been given all over the world for Pele. He did nothing but good for the world and showed nothing but good example, uh, especially to young people in a world of cover-up and corruption. Thank God for people like Pele, Lord rest them. Thank you indeed, uh, Navin listener, for that. Uh, thanks uh, to Betty, who's been in touch about uh, the overcrowding situation in hospital. A couple of people in touch with us about that today, saying you wouldn't treat a, an animal like that. You'd, you'd expect uh, there to be better conditions uh, if you were going to the vets than one of our hospitals. Uh, somebody else in touch saying, my mother was in hospital since since Friday last, and there wasn't a pillow for her until Sunday. Uh, that was in the Lord's Hospital. Thank you indeed uh, to those of you who have been in touch. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, tell us about your own hospital experience or something else for that matter. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie for that matter. Now let's uh, stay with that hospital uh, situation and the ongoing over crowding in hospitals right across the country and we'll hear more from the Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly now. So would I like to see more more staff, more beds, more nursing home beds, more diagnostics? I would. Um, government has allocated the funding. Um, we've sanctioned it through the national service plans and whilst the HSC hasn't hit all of the targets, I think we really do need to reflect that the HSC over the last two and a half years or three years while dealing with COVID has added more beds, more staff, uh, more diagnostics um, than any previous year and, and would we all like to see more of, of, of course we would and the second thing that needs to happen is we need to make sure that patient flow is as good as it can be all over the country uh, and we see some parts of the country are doing uh, very very well uh, other parts or other hospitals are struggling more uh, and one of the things I'm working with the HSC on is to make sure 
that that um, that the best possible approaches in the interest of the patients are used right across uh, right across the system. There's also things I think will help, like the new consultant contract. The figures today, for example, show Letterkenny. A lot of people waiting on trolleys in Letterkenny. Now, there's a new um, nursing home going to be built right across in the hospital, which will help in terms of discharge, particularly uh, short-stay discharge. But Letterkenny has struggled um, to hire consultants. And I was up there recently. I was talking with them about various teams they have um, where they might have sanctioned for six consultants, but they can only hire one or two. Um, my hope is that the new consultant contract will make a difference. Um, I hope the IMO and the IHCA um, will back it. I hope they will endorse it. And the message can go out, go out from Ireland right around the world to so many of our Irish-trained consultants to say, come home, we've got a great new contract. Um, we are fundamentally building and reforming our public health service and come home and, and, and help us with that work. Well, very good. Uh, that's uh, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly speaking uh, to reporters. Great to think that we've got a great new contract for consultants come home uh, and uh, work in our health service and solve uh, this problem. But as we start this new year, uh, we have uh, once again the same old problems. It's a new year with a new minister uh, in terms of how long this problem has been going on. And it is uh, the same old problem that we've been uh, facing into every January with uh, the same old problems and the same situation of it being overcrowded and so on. Same solutions are being offered and uh, once again we have a government minister telling us how it's going to be solved but the question is will we be in the same situation uh, come next year? It's a situation that has worsened over the years and as we've been hearing uh, it was declared a national emergency in 2006 when there were less than 500 people on trolleys. Yesterday there were close to a thousand people on trolleys. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we'll stay with pressure on hospitals, uh, but from a slightly different perspective, uh, because we're told that there's only a handful of adolescent inpatient mental health beds in the country and that this has led to a hidden epidemic. It's a crisis that is being highlighted by two consultant psychiatrists, Dr Mary Cannon and Dr Michelle Hill, who say that there's been an astronomical number of self-harm presentations and that the number of young people who are self-harming is shocking. Let's uh, speak to Fiona Jennings, who's Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with uh, the ISPCC. A very good morning to you, Fiona. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's relatively commonplace, isn't it, uh, that young people are finding life difficult and um, coming to uh, harm themselves in some way. Uh, is this a new phenomenon? Good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it was very concerning to to, to read um, what Dr. Mary Cannon and Dr. Michelle Hill, her colleague as well, were reporting um, in terms of what they're seeing um, of children and young people presenting, as you said, there to A and E um, with self harm and suicidal ideation. Um, is it a new phenomenon? We certainly hear about it in Chiline from time to time, and I suppose <clears throat> with us, it's the you know, that mental, emotional health um, profile, if you want, has been consistently in the top two of the reasons that children and young people call us and get in touch with us. Um, so when we talk about that, then, you know, what what they're telling us then is that, you know, there's, there's huge issues around anxiety and stress. Bereavement can be an issue. 
depression, loneliness, low moods, unhappiness. Um, so there's a lot of things, mm. I suppose, that can, can come together there. Um, but I suppose what then kind of leads children on to, you know, self-harm, etc. Um, and I know Dr. Mary Cannon would have said that, you know, self-harm sometimes is that cry for help. So is it a stage, is it at, um, you know, where children and young people get to a certain point, they just can, can't cope no longer. Mm. Um, and that they see that that's their kind of cry for help. It's hugely concerning. Um, as I said, we know that children are struggling to cope, even with the, the you know, day-to-day things, the, the normal adversities in life, if you want. Yeah, I'm just wondering, though, is it an option that children uh, perceive is available to them that uh, previous generations wouldn't seen, wouldn't have seen to have been an option? There's always been things like anxiety, stress, loneliness, depression, uh, bullying, uh, and so on, that children have faced into. But is there an increase in children who are acting on those feelings uh, and self-harming as a result? I think there probably is, like anecdotally wise, I think that, um, you know, from what we would see is that children perhaps would see it as an option, shall we say, for coping. Um, They are probably more exposed to it in terms of what they're seeing on social media um, and, and how it's portrayed there. So the impact social media can have as well you know, obviously, like so many children now, they have their own smartphone. You know, they have access to devices that are internet enabled and they're they're basically able to watch whatever they want to consume, you know, that type of media, whichever way they want. Sometimes with, with, with little, um, I suppose, oversight, if you want. Um, and being directed and, to it uh, <clears throat> by all uh, accounts, according to that uh, Facebook whistleblower who uh, talked about the algorithms uh, and uh, that young people would be directed um, through links to harmful sites. Yes, well, we know from, I suppose, the Molly Russell case in the UK where the co- the coroner's report there and they were categorical in terms of what they put into their report that, you know, it was absolutely a contributing factor to um, the, the death of Molly Russell in terms of the content that she was being served up. So sometimes people go online, they may be looking for help and support, um, you know, for managing their, their low mood or their... Or it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Their, their negative feelings and, you know, they're served up this particular type of content, um, which is harmful. And I suppose to somebody who where there's already a vulnerability there, it can absolutely um, exacerbate it. Um, it is concerning that, you know, that the only place these children feel they can go and the only place they do have to go is to A&E. And we know from all the coverage in the media at the moment, the huge pressure that's already on the emergency departments, um, you know, in terms of like the, the seasonal flu, etc. Um, and then for a child or young person to, to be in that mix as well, um, you know, if they have um, a mental health um, issue mm. and they need support or they have um, suicidal um, yeah. behaviour as well. Yeah, I know that some young people uh, or their parents, for that matter, have been told to go to A&D uh, because it's the only way that they'll get a, a referral. Otherwise, they'll be left lingering forever. And uh, it seems as though there's um, a crisis uh, when it comes uh, to crisis situations. We don't have uh, the infrastructure in place, we don't have uh, the beds in place, we don't have the staffing in place, we don't have the system up and running to deal with people who are in a crisis situation. But it, it begins before that, doesn't it? Because uh, we also have a problem in early intervention. Oh yeah, very much so. And I mean, what we're talking about here, what um, Dr. Cannon and Dr. Hill are talking about is very much the end point, if you want. But exactly as you said, Michael, so much more can happen along the way. You know, yes, we're always going to need inpatient beds for, you know, children and young people who have, um, I suppose, severe mental health difficulties. But there's so much work that can be done up to that point. Now, I know they do bring up the, the thing around, you know, there's never been as much awareness around, you know, well-being and, and that type of um, education, if you want. But, you know, the rates are still not dropping. So we wonder, you know, is it that more and more children are just becoming aware of how they're feeling and can't cope? Or is it that, you know, the well-being that, education that's out there is not meeting their needs today. So I think there's a lot more that we need to understand behind those issues as well. Even for ourselves in Chiline, you know, we often try to delve in behind the statistics, so behind that mental emotional health profile to better understand what exactly is happening, what are the stories behind those children, and then look at, you know, what the policy responses need to be. Mm. Uh, and maybe you could uh, expand on that, Fiona. Are you talking about uh, children uh, mm-hmm. who maybe have uh, mental health problems uh, naturally or, or um, that there's triggers in their life or a combination of both? A, a combination of both. I mean, even for, you know, adult mental health, there will always be a small small proportion of the population where, you know, mental illness is is prevalent and they will need the required help and support. And I suppose what the concerns are is the prevention and the early intervention work that we're all trying to do, um, you know, if there was better investment there, so even more increased but targeted investment as well along the way. And we often talk about, you know, universal programmes and trying to teach children to cope better, to recognise their feelings, to recognise how they react to their feelings as well. Mm. Um, so to kind of have that embedded along the way um, to help them, I suppose, develop better long-term coping skills as well, right through into teenage years, into adulthood as well. Um, so, and I suppose the parents as well, 
that, you know, parents, um, they know their children best. Mm. Um, and for the support that parents can be offered as well in terms of, you know, recognising even the smallest changes in behaviour in their, their child or young person as well. Um, and to have conversations with them, you know, around those changes in behaviour and also as well to have conversations with them around, you know, what they're, you know, how they're consuming, I suppose, digital media as well, social mm. media. Um, because there is, you know, with the, with children out there that it's really important to talk to them about what yeah. they're seeing online, that of it's course. not reality. Yeah. And sometimes they can be aspiring to that. Mm. And I mean, that's the best early intervention possible because uh, it's uh, from the most trusted source possible. Uh, children, uh, generally speaking, trust their parents uh, above everybody else. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, uh, from the stories you hear uh, about services, uh, you really would have to sympathise with parents if uh, they um, are in a situation where they're child is in a crisis because the services just aren't there. They're, they're, they're woeful by all uh, accounts. Um, uh, what would you say to uh, somebody uh, who is a parent? Uh, as you say, uh, they know their children better than anybody else. But <coughs> if they wake up one day feeling that their child is a stranger uh, all of a sudden or um, their, their, their behaviour has been such that uh, it's alien to what they know of their child um, and that they're worried about them and what should they be doing at that stage? I mean, look, if there's a parent listening to this and they're in that situation, the first thing is, you know, don't panic. You're not alone. You know, there are organisations out there that can help. I mean, GPs can be a fantastic first port of call in terms of signposting you know, parents to different organisations, even like ourselves and ISPCC, you know, we have a support line available Monday to Friday um, where, you know, parents themselves can ring up if they've got a concern or a query and our um, trained personnel are able to talk them through different options that might be there. Sometimes the parents themselves need somebody to listen to them in order to give them the confidence or for them, for the parents themselves to recognise, you know, they already have the, the skills there to talk to their child or young person um, and to really kind of, you know, talk to, get, get you know, get, talk, try and talk to somebody themselves first um, and then, you know, broach it with their child or young person as well to try yeah. to figure out, you know, what's happened, you know, what's changed, that they've noticed there's been a change in their behaviour you know, has something happened to them? Have they seen something that's upset them? Has somebody said something? Um, and to broach it in that way, first of all, um, you know, sometimes it might be that the child or young person just needs somebody to actually, you know, meaningfully sit down and talk with them. Mm. Um, and then it's in those types of situations, um, you know, that, that children can reveal what's going on. They may have been struggling with something that, you know, bullying might be happening or there might be something more, um, I suppose, more severe going on as well. Um, but try to kind of pick up on the small cues as you go along as well. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Yeah. You know, we all live very busy lives today yeah. as well. Um, but it's about kind of having that network around them as well. Um, you know, talking to the teachers in school, talking to coaches as well, just to see, kind of building up that picture to see are those behaviours you know, different in the classroom setting as well or different on the sports field or is it just at home um, to try and get a picture as to what's going on. Yeah. 
to let our children know that they're valued, that they're loved and that their life is very, very important. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. All right, Fiona. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, That's uh, Fiona Jennings, Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with uh, the ISPCC. Now, thanks uh, to Sean, who's been uh, in touch with us, who said, uh, maybe we should all get on a, a plane and head off to Angola to get hospital treatment. Uh, He says, Mary Harney was correct. We're now worse than Angola. What's the point of spending money educating doctors uh, and then they leave as soon as uh, they've qualified? Once they have their degree, they're gone, says Sean. Thank you indeed, Sean. Uh, Actually, I'm not sure. I think it was Brian Cowan uh, when he was appointed Minister for Health. He said uh, it's like the the Ministry for Angola. Uh, But uh, it was one of them anyway. Joe, thanks you for your message too. He says, Michael, whatever... Uh, you think of Pope Benedict or any other Pope or indeed modern day standards, the Ten Commandments still stand. The world may change, but the Lord remains the same. The problem today is a lot of people don't want to listen to a message that will only bring joy to them. Thank you indeed, Joe, uh, for your text of the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, over the next seven years, uh, the world we live in today will be unrecognisable because of uh, the necessary uh, move to reduce carbon emissions under the Climate Action Plan that was published uh, just uh, before Christmas uh, and the way we live our lives uh, as a result. Indeed, uh, you could say uh, it's not a question of if it will be an unrecognisable world, but it'll have to be an unrecognisable world because the emissions must be reduced and that's by law. It's important to understand where this sits and it sits in our legal structures in the law with real import. This is not an ordinary report which is advisory or which is descriptive. It is the legal basis in which we will carry out the transition, the change we need to make. The change is beyond compare. In electricity, we're an area where we have comparative competitive advantage and every reason to make the leap because of the high price of fossil fuels and the security threat we're under because of the war in Ukraine, we will switch massively to renewables. Continued onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, a whole range of different renewable supplies where we can and will deliver the clean power that will give our country security into the future. Green Party leader and Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, uh, and there will be a 75% reduction in uh, emissions through electricity. Uh, for commercial and public buildings, uh, emissions will reduce by 45%. 40% for residential buildings. Transport is said to see a 50% cut, a 35% cut in industry and 25% in agriculture. Pauline O'Reilly, Green Party Senator, is a Chair of the Green Party and a member of the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Senator O'Reilly. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What happens under the law if these targets are not met? Well, they will, well they'll, they'll have to be met. Um, ha- so there will be probably um, sanctions against departments who don't meet that, meet the targets. But um, they'll be adjusted every year. So this is one of a number of climate action plans. And so every year the targets would get tougher if a department is failing to meet that. But it isn't just in relation to departments themselves, but it's also in relation to the um, regulator for electricity, um, in relation to local authorities, so that they all have obligations. And the first obligation for local authorities is to have a climate action plan 
previously they had had plans which were really just about um, adapting their own services where these plans will have to be in relation to everything in in a county or in a particular area, town or or city. Um, So things are going to ramp up now from this year because this is the first plan that is a legally binding one. Okay. Um, Would you say sanctions against the departments, uh, what form might they take? Well, what, realistically, what they'll be is that you'll have you'll have greater and greater ambition to reach, um, and you know, as with any job, if people aren't performing to expectations, um, there there probably be be things you know people shuffled around. Um, but I think it's too early to say that right now. Other than that, it is legally binding, um, and so they have an obligation to meet it. Okay. Um, is it possible uh, to fulfil a legal obligation uh, if uh, the task you're charged with is impossible? Well, I don't believe that it is impossible. And uh, one of the good things about this is um, we spent a significant amount of time on the Climate Act, which is the the law that underpins it and strengthened an advisory climate um change advisory board and it's that board that has recommended a lot of the changes and has looked at what is realistic but actually what is absolutely necessary and it is going to mean that people's lives are changed but I think that it's important that we remember that it is also for the better um, because it's it's changing habits um, that have got us to this this stage and also it's it's changing the future for our children and not just future generations but actually the generations who are alive now mm. um, and so things in the plan are like reducing down um, car mileage by 20% for instance How? Uh, so I mean one of the ways is obviously um, through increased public transport and cycling but one of the other ways of course is that people would uh, need to to have less journeys and so some of the measures that we put in place around flexible working um, which is something that Minister Roderick O'Gorman had um, a, a recent piece of legislation on, those are things that also mean that people need to travel less. Now obviously um, one size doesn't fit all for every family mm. but um, you know one of the things that we found going into government was that only 53% of the population were served by public transport and so we set an ambition there um, and money behind that to increase that to 70% so that 70% of people would have a, a, a good local option for tran- for transport across rural Ireland. Can that um, be done I, in the time frame? Well we've already seen a rollout of new bus services and that's phase one I mean there's mm. a new bus service for instance going um, from Navin to, to Drada mm. um, and so there are links not just up with the capital city which is what it used to be but there are links with um, towns across Ireland um, and you know indeed I'm from the west of Ireland so we, we've seen a number of new bus services there as well because that was particularly poorly served and um, so that's what needs to happen. Um, we have 91 new carriages coming on stream um, for trains um, and hope to get new train lines opened on our old rail lines, which should never have been shut down, in my opinion. Um, but local authorities are going to have to step up and local councillors mm. are also going to have to step up to the mark when it comes to cycle lanes because um, we do need to ensure that 
we get cycle lanes. That means in some instances that some yeah. parking spaces will have to be removed and that's not an Well, something will have to be done because a lot, a lot of these roads are designed for horse and carts, aren't they? Well, um, so, some certainly in yeah. our towns yeah. are, are um, narrow, um, but they're also at the moment having lots of parking on either side in many instances, not everywhere, as I say, but in some instances. And it, it does mean re-looking at mm. how do we use our roads. They had to be looked at uh, several decades ago, and now we have to re-look at it again. And there's But, there's but, but given the funding. infrastructure and the, uh, and the way roads are designed, are, are you talking about more one-way streets so that the road could be shared between cars and bicycles and e-scooters and so on? In some instances, it's one way. Um, and in some instances, it is removing parking from one side of the road. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's not one size fits all, as I say. But what we really need to do is make sure, particularly that children can safely cycle and, um, you know, older, vulnerable adults, but all of us, in fact, because I think a lot of us feel that it's, it's mm. unsafe unless we have that infrastructure. Mm. So um, that's really important. And, uh, you know, it, it, what we see actually is that about 30% of the traffic is kids being brought to school. So I have uh, been pushing for a ramping up of school bus services, for instance, so that it's not just cycling, mm. but that there are options there for people and that parents aren't stuck in their cars because they don't feel that there's another option for them. Okay. So those things are going to change. We'll have solar panels on every school building by 2025. Mm. So I think that people will see the change and will feel that it is better but it isn't without um, a significant rethinking and reframing of our own consciousnesses in, in what, you know, what we expect from daily life. All right. Uh, but does it mean that if you get the train instead of driving to work, um, if you're uh, going some distance, that you'll have to stand for the length of the journey? Uh, I got a, on a, a train the other day and if anybody else had turned up for that train, they'd have been left on the platform because there really wasn't a, a, enough room on the train. It was very uncomfortable given all of... Uh, the viral uh, diseases that are around at the moment. Uh, I, I know that there's always a, a problem with the airport bus, for example. It's a half an hour late every single day of the year. Mm. Well, look, uh, in relation to the airport bus, um, it, I I wasn't aware of that, but I'll certainly look into that. Um, but the, what, what I will say about carriages is, as I said earlier, um, we have new delivery now of carriages and that's going to be ongoing. Um, but it, it is a symptom of the fact that more and more people are taking the train, which in some ways is good, but we have to make sure that all of the infrastructure is there. And as I say, there's delivery of 91 new carriages um, and mm. many, you know, we're moving to electric as well. But, um, you know, the reduction that Minister Ryan um, put in place, which was 20% reduction on all public transport and 50% for people under the age of 24. That um, we've we're continuing that, and people are using more public transport as a result. So we are seeing mm. return from that, and also um, from the free public trans free school transport, which again um, we introduced to save people money okay. but it also has it has an impact then on the environment and so I really want to see um, the Minister for for Education next year and the year after really ramping up on okay. the school buses. The, the, the biggest uh, offender, uh, most emissions uh, from agriculture uh, and uh, they've least to do it seems in terms of reducing uh, emissions. Uh, was that uh, a case of the farmers winning the argument? 
Well, we always said that um, it was going to be it was going to be a challenge in farming, and it's um, you know it's not just about farmers; it's actually about food production as well, uh, which serves us all. So we're all reliant on on our food sector, um, but you know it. Agriculture and transport are pretty much close to each other on a par when it comes to um, emissions. And transport, we do need to see a 50% reduction. That's what we've set as a target. And in agriculture, we've set 25% as a target. But um, already in agriculture, we are seeing huge changes. There's more and more people turning to organic farming, for instance. And that is because um, of the increased... um, the increased finance and grants behind organic farming that we've put in place and we have a target of 10% by 2030, which is a huge leap for Ireland. Um, We also have a really ambitious forestry target, Mm. 1.3 billion euro going into it. And we have um, new schemes, which are um, agro-environmental schemes, agri-environmental schemes, and certainly um, farmers that I have met are happy with the, with that new scheme, that mm. acres scheme, which will promote biodiversity, but also then pr- promotes um, a different mix of farming. And we mm. have a, a target for tillage farming, which um, is going to you know massively increase tillage. Uh, and do you believe that will uh, reduce uh, the national herd uh, uh, because uh, people will be incentivized to diversify and go into organic or forestry or whatever the case may be? Exactly. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's important to realise that organic farming includes um, includes animals mm-hmm. in that as well. But um, it certainly is a less intensive form of farming, and um, we would see that all of these me- measures would naturally uh, reduce the size of the herd. Absolutely, uh, but ensuring that farmers have have an income and that that's maintained and that they are paid um, for the work that they do for the environment is important Um, and you know anaerobic digestion is another one where where farmers will be paid for um, for anaerobic digestion and that's using the waste on their farms Um, and so if we if you know if if farmers feel that they're supported um, and you know there's probably it's less intensive and less um, you know less challenging work in some respects that's what I've certainly heard from organic farmers because you're putting you know, you're not putting fertilisers to the same extent on the on the land. You have um, less money that you're putting into it, but you're getting you're getting higher um, you know higher payments than at the end of it, and, and that's what we want to see happen because 60% of our land is private, and um, so it's it's farmers. Mm-hmm. That really are the custodians of the environment in now, any respect. There's huge challenges ahead, as you say, they're legally binding, uh, so they'll have to happen uh, over the course of uh, the next seven years or, or so, but we leave it there for the moment, and that's uh, obviously uh, the first of many steps uh, for that matter. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's Senator Pauline O'Reilly, who's uh, the chair of uh, the Green Party and the member of the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee. 
If you're living in County Louth and you bought your house sometime between October and December, you paid 9% more than you would have in uh, the final three months of 2021. 5% more in County Meath uh, if you bought uh, during that time period compared to a year uh, previously. And in County Louth now, the average price of a home is €271,000. In County Meath, it's €319,000. That's according to the latest report from daft.ie. The author of the report is Ronan Lyons and Ronan Lyons is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin. He's on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Ronan. Thanks as always uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. We're seeing more increases, but you're seeing some hope on the horizon, are you? Yeah, so um, uh, you went through some of the, the key numbers there. Uh, if, if we take a step back and look at the country as a whole, um, the increase in uh, over the course of, of 2022 was about 6%. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't sound like a big change from the previous two years when the increases were about 8%. But when you look at the, what was happening it, sort of between the year-end reviews, you can actually see a pattern where there was quite a lot of uncertainty at different points during COVID. Um, but overall, COVID boosted demand and, and worsened supply. Um, it boosted demand because people were at home and they had less um, discretionary spending. Their savings went up by more than they expected and that typically translated through into, into higher house prices, especially outside of the, the major cities. And it weakened supply, um, but weakened supply because you couldn't go and view properties. That actually meant that the, the second-hand market in particular teased up quite a bit. Now, over the course of 2022, both of those things started to change. Supply improved, more homes started coming onto the market, but also demand weakened. Demand weakened because the macroeconomy has changed. People are talking about inflation and the cost of living crisis. Everyone's a little bit less certain about how things are going to look two or three years from now. And as a result, with, with demand weakening and, and, and supply improving, I think the mood music as of January 2023 is quite different to when we were having this discussion, say, a year ago. Right. Uh, and what about mortgage interest rates? I mean, that's the, that's the most obvious way in which somebody looking to buy a home can see how conditions have changed. Um, uh, I, uh, personally speaking, uh, myself, my wife, we, we, uh, we were coming off a fixed rate mortgage and we were looking to get a, a rate a year ago. The rate that we got a year ago has doubled um, since, um, from roughly 2% to roughly 4%. Um, and that's, that's not atypical. That's, that's relatively common across the market that, that fixed interest rates have, have changed quite a bit over the last 12 months. That is going to feed through into, into weaker demand over the course of 2023. We have, we're a little bit behind the curve compared to a lot of European countries. A lot of European countries saw the interest rate increases happening June, September, November last year. In Ireland, it's a, we're a little bit behind the curve. As late as October, November, interest rates in general hadn't moved that much. They have, they have increased quite a bit since then and um, bringing it into line. And that will, you can look at, if you look at the sentiment, uh, one of the elements of the report is a survey of how people feel about the market. And you can see in that that people don't expect prices to increase in the year ahead. 
in part because of things like higher interest rates. And that itself, even if the expectation is wrong, if people expect conditions to be a bit calmer, they're less likely to rush their own decision. Mm, yeah, well, it becomes all the more unaffordable uh, if uh, you have to pay out more each month on your repayments. Uh, but uh, that in itself won't bring down prices because uh, there's a lot of pressure uh, on every sector, isn't there, because of the cost of living and construction is uh, certainly one of uh, those sectors uh, that has uh, felt uh, the brunt of it and it's getting more expensive to build. Yeah, yeah, I think you, in some ways you've got to look at the housing market in, in two parts. There's the second-hand market where what it costs to build your home whenever it was built 10, 30, 50 years ago is irrelevant. But it's about what it's worth on the market now. And I think that's where there's a lot more flexibility up and down. Um, whereas new-built homes, new-built homes, it's really about the, 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 the cost of the materials and the land, of course, um, that, that go into it. And as you mentioned, the, the cost of materials has increased by relatively unprecedented um, percentages over the last uh, year and a half to two years. Um, COVID had, and if people might remember, the, the, um, the barge, or not the barge, but the, um, the ship that was stuck in the, uh, the Suez Canal, the Evergreen, oh, yeah. that was kind of like the, um, the, the picture that people have in their heads of the start of this, what, what is known as supply chain disruptions. But, but starting from there and going through to the war in Ukraine, um, that has had uh, an impact of about 20% on, on construction costs. What that means is that building the same home, um, in order to break even, the, the, the developers will have to charge a significantly higher price. Um, and and in, in, in that sense, they're as combined with higher interest rates, they're looking at a smaller share of the market who can afford with higher interest rates the higher construction cost. It's going to be a, a smaller share of the market. The one thing pushing in the other direction is the the is our, our policy measures. On the one hand, <clears throat> excuse me. On the one hand, the central bank has relaxed its mortgage rules. Um, so so now you can borrow up to four times your income rather than three and a half. And if you're a second-time buyer, um, you only need a 10% deposit rather than a, a larger deposit. So that that's on the one hand that will will make things a little bit easier for people to to to. Um, to, to borrow, and on the other hand, the government has introduced a shared equity scheme, where they um, round numbers. You might have a deposit of ten percent. The government might invest ten percent, and then you borrow the other eighty percent. Unlike help to buy, where it's effectively a gift, shared equity, the government retains its ten percent, and you can buy it out. Um, but it's not money that the government just gives away. It's an it's an investment that the government will 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 get back at some point. Both of those things will help demand a little bit. But I think overall, the um, the conditions in the market, as you described, with higher interest rates and um, higher construction costs, um, all of that is going to feed through into, into a weaker market in 2023 compared to 2022. Right. Uh, that's in-house sales. Uh, if that's the case, uh, and if it's true to say that supply has increased but hasn't increased in line with demand, what impact is that going to have overall? Does it mean that there will be further increases in the cost of renting? Yeah, as you say, we've been talking about the sales market. The mm. sales market, for all of its woes, it is in better health now than it was five or six years ago when and there were very few transactions taking place. There were very few new homes getting built. 
it is in a better place now than it was. On the rental side, there has been no improvement, really. We have been losing our rental stock in part into the sales segment. Um, we have not been replacing it, especially outside Dublin. And even what's happened, what is being built in Dublin in terms of new rental accommodation is very small relative to the scale of the, the need. So overall, the picture on the rental market is... Uh, it, 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 it's, it's definitely the case, I think, that 2023 will be another year of scarcity. So uh, it, it, will, it will really come down to how much more people can afford to pay in rent to secure somewhere, um, given that availability is very tight. Uh, if, if you can do the chart on, 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 uh, for supply for how many homes are available to buy or to rent at any particular point in time. Uh, it, that's improving on the sales mm. side and it's coming back to where it was pre-COVID it, it, in the rental side it's still it's at all time lows it's at lows and in, in the case of Dublin we can go back over 20 years and we have seen nothing like the, 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 the very low level of homes available to rent at any particular point in time so unfortunately on the rental side I don't think we'll see any in, improvement in conditions this year Alright which is peculiar for a lot of people who are renting who wish they had a mortgage instead of paying out so much uh, uh, as is the case in rent because it would be cheaper uh, in terms of the monthly repayments for a, a lot of people it, it would seem uh, but uh, just to get to the bottom line then uh, if uh, this trend that you're seeing now continues rolling uh, will it result in a fall in prices? I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we saw prices uh, certainly stabilising and perhaps falling in certain markets over the, the, the course of the next few months I think it will depend on where. There are some markets where supply is still very low. And with COVID having reshuffled housing demand a bit, uh, I, it may still be the case that there's, there's good value for people who, especially if interest rates are going up, people are looking for cheaper markets and they may be prepared um, to, to, to look at, in, at, at regions they wouldn't have before. So I think there, there may still be um, increases in, in some markets. But overall, I think for the, for the country as a whole, and certainly for the more expensive markets, in the country, uh, I'd be very surprised if we saw increases um, uh, like we were used, to, we have been used to seeing um, over the last couple of years of, of three or four percent in the first couple of months of the year. I'd be very surprised if we saw that this year. I'd be less surprised if we saw falls of a couple of percent in, in the first few months of the year. Okay, all right, very interesting. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Ronan Lyons, uh, an economist at Trinity College in Dublin, who is the author of uh, that report for Daft.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we're going to speak once again to Kevin Comiskey, who's chairman of the IFA Sheep Committee and a regular guest on this programme for the same reason in different parts of the country time and again. And a very good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We're talking about a significant amount of sheep that were killed in Tipperary going into the new year. Indeed. Uh, good morning, Michael, and Happy New Year to you and Thank your you. listeners. Yes. And unfortunately, it's it's not a Happy New Year in this instance. And, and uh, indeed, as you said, only a couple of weeks, as I spoke to you before on the same same issue, um, another horrendous attack down there uh, yesterday, Laura, and, uh, or during the week there. Uh, terrible atrocities again. We'll out see that slaughter for the for the sheep involved, and then for the family, horrific on the family going down and, and neighbours went out and hear the the lady describing it yesterday as, as one of the neighbours going out and crying actually in the field. Uh, the trauma on the sheep and the trauma on the families. It's it's just horrific. It's it's beyond explanation. Mm. 
45 sheep killed outright, 20 others had to be put down uh, and I'm quoting this because most had their eyes and faces ripped away, Uh, another 5 are are missing. Uh, Overall it's 70 dead, 20 injured and 5 sheep missing it's just beyond belief It's it's a huge huge a huge significant kill and I suppose had to be a few dogs involved or whatever and and, uh, you know along with the financial loss the the, the, the trauma as I said there's huge financial loss there and and going out there's huge financial loss in gathering up them sheep and getting them you know getting them away they have to be all taken away and disposed of and there's huge cost involved in that and and the trauma as I said going out and collecting and getting them scattered around the field dead and it, it, it I just can't bear to think what it's like. Like, I did visit the one in Moneygall yeah. and, and I didn't get to visit this one, but um, you can only imagine what it's like going around finding dead animals uh, around the field in, in numerous numbers like that. It's it's horrific. Mm. Yeah, the farmer, Donald O'Donoghue, uh, told uh, the journal, these were killer dogs. They went for the hoggets' faces and throats and in a few instances... They ripped their stomachs wide open. Uh, uh, this is horror movie stuff. Uh, but the point of it is not to upset people listening to us uh, this morning. We're all upset listening to it, but we were upset the last time, as you said, Kevin, and the time before. Uh, and unless there is some real action, we're going to be upset again about this. Yes, yes, indeed. And unfortunately, I suppose, as I said in a few interviews there, it's, it's the big numbers and the significant numbers that gets highlighted, but I'm getting calls, and I've said this on numerous occasions, weekly, daily basis, you know, there could be two here, there could be seven somewhere else, there could be up to 15, you know, smaller numbers going under the radar. But I said this when I was first elected last year on the 28th and 27th of January, I said it was a priority of mine to work on this because I'd been six years on the committee and every time it was on the agenda and I said this is one thing if I can do anything it's one thing there's loads of issues with the sheep sector but I said this was a priority because this slaughter has to stop and I did go like the 27th of January the morning that I was elected onto the as chairman Minister McConnell Hogan Minister Humphreys uh, stood in a field out in, in uh, County Dublin and they were highlighting the, the this issue of dog control and, and how dangerous it can be at any time of the year, but especially around the lemon time they were saying. And still, we went to them, IFA, committee myself and our committee went to them. We had concrete proposals to know exactly what we want and what's needed. It may not be perfect, but it's, it's, it's significant what we want. We want the microchipping, the microchips, the licensing linked to the responsible owner, a single national database and the penalties put in place, proper sanctions and penalties put in place that will reflect this horrendous damage that's been witnessed right across the country. And like there's there's three departments there involved and in fairness the Minister McConnellogue did write to the other uh, three ministers or two ministers and said that he wanted to meet them and get this sorted out and Three weeks ago yesterday, I travelled from Moneygall back to Dublin and there was a, a motion in no confidence and we waited and we met with the Minister in fairness. He gave us a good listening to and it was late 12 o'clock that night nearly when we left him and he said he would act in, in January and that's why I'm calling out this morning and I've done it yesterday on different media outlets and I've been in contact with uh, Minister Humphreys and my colleague, Vice Chairman, has been in contact with Minister McConnell to get an emergency meeting uh, called between the three ministers, get the three ministers round the table 
and one minister take ownership, uh, probably Mr. McConnell, preferably take ownership of this and just get it sorted out because all mm. them sanctions and, and uh, microchipping that I mentioned, mm. um, enforcement might it'll be the key one mm. because if if you have all the laws in the world, if you have some enforcement on them, they fall at the first fence. Yeah, yeah. and I, I suppose most dog owners are, are responsible. Uh, uh, if everybody was as responsible as you'd hope they would be, uh, then you wouldn't need uh, any of uh, these sanctions or the follow-through uh, for that matter. Um, what would you say to dog owners uh, this morning, Kevin? I'd, I'd, I'd plead with them, always make sure and know where your dog is. At every stage of the time, if it's at night when you're going to bed, have a kennel, have the dog locked up, make sure the dog is, is under responsible control at all times. Even people out walking or anything, the dog has to be on a lead and has to be out. You know, the farm side, countryside is a beautiful place to be, but if you're out with your dog, you have to have them under effective control at all times, and you can't be letting them run willy-nilly away. And you'll see these posts up on Facebooks, you know, out out on the hill, and next thing you're, the dog has gone missing and that. That's totally irresponsible, and it's not acceptable, and it just cannot continue on to be going on like that. So, as you say, look, the majority of people is responsible, but... There's there's over round rough figures, nine hundred thousand dogs out there, maybe a hundred and ninety of them, hundred and ninety thousand microchipped or licensed. There's a whole uh, for a vast amount of dogs there, not uh, in on the uh, legislature or in on the microchipping and license, and they have to be brought in there, and the whole lot has to be pulled together. Okay, we'll leave it there on that note, and uh, hopefully we'll. Uh Result, it'll result in people uh, taking on board what you had to say, Kevin. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, and hopefully there will be some action at a, a government level which will bring about a change and that we don't have to talk about these terrible stories again in the future. Kevin Kuminski, chair of the IFA Sheep Committee. Maggie McGuire, re- uh, research today. Chris Murray was in uh, the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.